Hi everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 200. Today on our show, author Wendy Hart Beckman. Oh my lord, when I first got <laughs> here, I thought, what the heck is this slop? <laughs> I couldn't believe they put it on spaghetti. Wendy's the author of 10 nonfiction books on a variety of subjects, and she's working on a fiction work. Her latest is Christmas in Cincinnati. It covers the holiday seasons here in the Tri-State historically from the Shilito Elves all the way up to the Zoo's Festival of Lights and a whole lot more. We discuss how she went from the EPA to being a published author. We talk about a few presidents along the way and a whole bunch more. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Wendy Hart Beckman about Christmas in Cincinnati and a whole lot more. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati. She came down Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm in Cincinnati. I'm always jealous of authors. I think you've had a career similar to mine, except I haven't written any books yet. You started as a freelance writer, I guess, and uh, I'm always saying I'm going to write a book. And by golly, one of the days I'm going to get around to it. But uh... <laughs> well, yeah, and I always thought I would write the you know a best-selling novel, and so far my ten books have all been nonfiction, but. I'm uh, determined to to finish that novel and there, get it published one way or another. There you go. Well, uh, we'll start with, our, I guess, our usual question when we're talking to somebody that we don't really know. Are you from Cincinnati originally? No, I'm not. I was I was born in Pennsylvania, but I grew up in Massachusetts. Okay. I moved here right out of college to work for the Environmental Protection Agency. Oh. And uh, while working for the government, I was laid off a couple of times. You know how the budget things go. Oh, yeah. And each time my parents said, come home, come home. And I thought, no, I really like it here in Cincinnati. So I just dug in my heels and found other jobs. Okay. So what other jobs did you find? Well, after the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, I worked at the VA hospital, which unfortunately was an animal research. So it was kind of painful. I I really didn't like that job. And then I went to work at Fernald on the northwest side of Hamilton County where I met my husband, and uh, I worked there for 13 years, and I just loved it. I loved the place. So what did you do for the EPA? For the EPA, I was a water quality technician, which uh, boils down to, uh, I see a little joke there, sorry. I was going to say. <laughs> being a, a glass and bottle washer. Uh, so actually, seriously, I did some really cool stuff where we did water quality testing, bluegill fish and fathead minnows and chironomids, which is a little, you know, um, it starts out as a larvae, but it, then it turns into a fly. So we would put, people would ship us water samples and we would do different toxicity testing to see at what concentration, if any, did their water kill any wildlife. So it was actually pretty interesting. 
And then how did the uh, interest in writing come along? Did you always kind of have that as a hobby or did you, that you kind of, was that necessitated by getting laid off at the EPA? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, have you seen uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Yes, of course. And the, the uh, elf who always wanted to be a dentist, Herbie, that's yes. me. Everything, I, I always wanted to be a writer. In fact, when I was 10 years old, I had a poem published in a national kids magazine, which is kind of ironic because my poetry is my worst writing. You know, I, I write jingles, birthday cards, that kind of stuff for friends, but my poetry is horrible. So, so then I followed that success with, um, I wrote my autobiography when I was 12. But my mother told me I needed to do something important before people would buy an autobiography written by me. So I was introduced to the rejection aspect of writing <laughs> early on. By your own mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and then pretty much every job I had, I ended up like incorporating writing into it somehow until finally I ended up in uh, 2000. I ended up in, uh, at the University of Cincinnati in public relations where I was writing news releases and that kind of stuff. I, and I just loved that, working with all the faculty, finding out the really cool stories. So how did you go to making it a, like a full-time gig? Was that after you left Fernald? Uh, no, it was, uh, well, you know, when I left Fernald, it was 95, and I started making it a full-time gig doing a combination of teaching at the University of Cincinnati, at Miami University. I was also a diversity consultant company in Cincinnati. And so I patched together my freelance writing. And then my husband, who was still out working at Fernald, we knew that the site was going to be done in 2006. They would have it cleaned up. And so he would need a job. So I switched to a, fa a staff position at um, UC so that then I would carry the benefits while he was looking for a job. Then um, I got laid off by UC in 2010, and I've been uh, writing ever since. So a lot of my a lot of my success comes from being laid off from various uh, agencies. <laughs> so what was your first freelance writing gig that paid? The first one was for Builder Architect Magazine, which is a trade magazine. It was it's. It paid me all of $25 for the cover story. Um, but then, I, I, you know, trickle-down uh, economics that Reagan talked about? Yes. I have this trickle-down freelance writing thing. You know how you can take each clipping and then parlay that into the next thing? Yeah. So pretty soon I was writing for a few trade magazines and still making about 25 to $50 for each one. Then I started writing for Cincinnati Magazine. Uh, I wrote for them for, I don't know, maybe three years as a, as a freelancer. I wasn't on staff. And then I used those clippings to enable me to get my first book contract. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was kind of neat because when I was uh, in a group called the National League of American Pen Women, and I was in the Cincinnati chapter, and one of my fellow members, a wonderful woman by the name of Kirk Polking, uh, who used to be the editor of Writer's Digest magazine, had published a young adult book about oceanographers. And she knew that my, my first two degrees were in science. And so she asked me if I would review it for our organization's newsletter. 
after I reviewed her book, I thought, boy, I love this format. I would love to write a book like this. So I contacted the publisher by email and pretty much tried to pitch myself as opposed to a specific book. I gave them some clippings. I gave them my resume and all that stuff that you do with your very first pitch. And nothing happened for a year. Then I got a call from an editor at the publishing house, which was Enslow Publishers. And the guy was cleaning out his predecessor's files, and he found a printed copy of my email. He asked if I'd be interested in writing, and I nearly screamed and deafened him and said, oh, yeah. (laughs) And he said they were looking for somebody who could write a book on the Harlem Renaissance. Well, in high school... I had done a one-year-long independent study with my favorite teacher on the Harlem Renaissance. And so it was just perfect coincidence. And so that was my first book, Artists and Writers of the Harlem Renaissance. Wow. Yeah, I kind of fell backwards into writing out of radio. Like the station I was working at uh, had an ownership change. Not really an ownership change. There was kind of a uh, kind of a coup uh, but anyway, uh, we left in support of our program director, and I still wanted to be I, what I thought in the music business, and I was having a hard time getting a job in radio, so I started my own music newspaper, and I was able to parlay that into getting a gig with Everybody's News here in Cincinnati. You know, part-time, freelance, didn't pay, paid in CDs. I'm sure you've had a yeah. lot of those gigs, or paid in books, or whatever you're reviewing, uh, or movie tickets, whatever the case may be. Yeah, and then, uh-huh. it, but it seemed like it took forever to, to crack that magazine nut because I, you know, would send out pitches and pit and people would like, oh, uh, we'll see. No thanks. So we'll put a hold on that. How long were you writing before you actually started working on the Harlem, uh, the writers, of the Harlem Renaissance book? Well, I was writing for uh, Cincinnati Magazine up until they overlapped. Up until I don't know, two thousand three, two thousand four, something like that. And I got the the Harlem Renaissance books contract in 2001, and I published that book in 2002. It was was kind of funny because when I I got my master's degree from UC in editing and publishing, and I took a fiction workshop from one of the professors just to help me write that, you know, best-selling novel I wanted to write. Each week we would critique two of the class. It was a small class, like eight people. We would critique two people's writing, and one week... A young man who had just gotten his bachelor's degree and immediately went into grad school without anything in between didn't have his writing sample done. And the professor said, why didn't you have it done? And he said, well, you don't understand. I have to teach this freshman class. And and I was grading papers. So the professor turned to me and said, Wendy, would you like to tell so-and-so what you did this week? And I said, well, I teach up at Miami. I teach three sections of a course. I have 60 students up there. I teach three sections of a course at UC. I have 60 students there. I'm working on an article for Cincinnati Magazine, and I just finished the uh, manuscript for my first book. And she turned to the guy and said, okay, tell me why you didn't have yours (laughs) done. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I thought it was kind of funny. But yeah, they they overlapped, and I think part of what it is is I have a short attention span, and I like to be working on several projects at the same time. Ah, I see. So how many books have you written? I've written uh, 10 books. I've I've published 10 nonfiction books, and I actually have finished a novel, but I haven't found a publisher for it yet. All my 10 books have been, as I said, nonfiction Five of them have been a young adult, and five of them have been adult. So could we ask what the novel is about? Oh, sure. 
the novel is has kind of a basis in uh, my my singing experience. I sang for the uh, May Festival Chorus for ten years, which is the official chorus of the Cincinnati Symphony. Oh. And I was a Sweet Adeline for ten years. And both of those organizations, they really strive for uniformity, especially Sweet Adeline, making people, the women needed to look the same, dance the same, sing the same. We had to wear the same travel outfits. We had to wear the same makeup. So I was thinking about how somebody in the middle of this sameness who's struggling for an identity might have trouble. So my book is about a woman who's a few years out of college, trying to figure out who she is as an adult. She joins an all-women's singing group called the Darling Clementines. In the middle of all this sameness, as I said, she's trying to figure out who she is. Her father, who has Alzheimer's, is trying to figure out who she was. So we have a juxtaposition of trying to gain your identity, but also kind of losing your identity. Wow. And so how much of your experience is in the book and how much of it is fictionalized. I always thought of doing kind of a similar thing. I used to be in a band with this guy when I was in college, and I thought, you know, that might have been a good leaping off point for kind of a fictitious book about, uh, you know, bands in the 80s and synth pop and things like that. How how much were you able to draw on your personal experience from that? Oh, that's a great question. If you had read my very first draft, which was about 20 years ago, it would have sounded almost like a, my diary. And then I thought, this is stupid, for several reasons. I was constraining myself to just how things had actually happened instead of using my imagination to think, what if? And also, I was using people I actually knew. So I have written, oh gosh, probably 10 different drafts of the book. And now uh, I really am focusing more on the key, the basic themes, like struggling for individuality and figuring out who you are, feeling alone even though you're in the midst of a whole bunch of people. So I'd say it would be a good jumping off point for you. And then feel free to not be constrained by reality. Yeah, they always say write what you know. And I mean, I guess I kind of lead toward that, but I think about it both in terms of books and in songwriting, uh, which I've also done, is like some people... I can still write about something they know nothing about, but then again, I guess it, it kind of shows too sometimes. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a famous example in literature of that. I, an English teacher pointed out. He said, I don't think this guy ever had any experience in, um, oh, what was it? It'll come to me because they got some things wrong. Oh, uh, it was a uh, Bertolt Beck play about China, and he th- Szechuan was a, he said it was a city, but really it's a province in China. It's like, dude didn't even bother to <laughs> look into the fact of where, because this guy was a German writing about China. He'd never been to China, didn't know anything about it. He just, he just imagined what China was like. I have a friend who lives up in, near Dayton, and she wrote a book, really wonderful book. Part of it takes place at the Cincinnati Zoo. <laughs> this kind of drove me nuts. She had, you know, the Cincinnati Zoo has Bengal tigers, And she had a kind of tiger and a kind of elephant that we don't have at the Cincinnati Zoo. Ah. And I was just really curious as to why did she make that kind of change? You know, I can see changing people's names or what they do, that kind of stuff. But why change the type of animal if you're going to use an actual zoo? And she said, it's fiction. Get over it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, yeah. See, but then but there's there's people out there that's, that's going to bug people, like you said, especially people that know Cincinnati and know the zoo. They're going to be like, we don't have a Bengal tiger, tiger there. And I think that would, that may, people might find that 
you know, distracting. I mean, you could maybe in the, she accounts for it and says, a Bengal tiger just arrived at the Cincinnati Zoo. And then you could be like, well, okay, now I can see where, it, where it's fictionalized. But yeah, I, I, I can see where that would bug people. It kind of kicked me out of the story a little bit. Yeah. I'm about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, which I guess is kind of annoying to people. But yeah, it's, you know, I, I like <laughs> when people get their facts straight. A couple of the books you've written are, of course, very Cincinnati-focused. And I guess the one you've been uh, on the news about and so forth, and I think this is the one my wife must have seen, is Christmas in Cincinnati. Or Christmas Cincinnati. Yeah, that one just came out in October. Okay. We were gearing for it to come out in time for Books by the Banks, but then there was no Books by the Banks. So... I'll be able to participate in next year's books by the banks. So it came out in October, but it was just in time for holiday gift giving. Christmas in Cincinnati is published by the History Press, which and uh, Arcadia, which like to focus on regional topics. In fact, the book before this one that I did for them was Eight Wonders of Cincinnati. This one, they actually contacted me. Once you make a, get a relationship with a publisher, it becomes a lot easier for nonfiction. Because my publishing houses have come to me and said, hey, we'd like you to write another book for us. What topics are you thinking about? So not being a native of Cincinnati, uh, I'm sure it was kind of very interesting to find out what some of the holiday traditions were. Although I'm sure you found out about a lot of them as you you know, were uh, living here, as, as did I. We moved here in 1993 or four, I believe it was. And kind of gradually found out about Shalito Elves and all the other holiday traditions. So what was that process like for you? Well, uh, one thing I did at the beginning of it, when I first got the contract, I went to uh, my friends on Facebook, whether I know them or not, and I said, hey, Cincinnati peeps, I'm writing a book about Christmas in Cincinnati. What were, were the things that you loved to do at Christmas, and what were some of the traditions that Cincinnatians do? Uh, what are your memories? And, of course, I... I I tested all. I questioned also my in-laws because I married into a big family here, and uh, so I often talked to them about what did they remember. Um, and it was kind of neat. Some of the stuff is is very common. I grew, as I said, I grew up in New England, and a lot of the things that people had here, I saw similar things in New England. Um, but no, of course, it wasn't the Shilato's elves. But we had other elves that were in other store windows up north in the Northeast. Yeah, we have a uh, sibling site called OldSchoolShirts.com, and last year I did a blog post for it, Christmas traditions in other cities. And like you're saying, uh, not cities don't have the exact same traditions, which is cool, but there are similar ones. It seems department stores are kind of like the epicenter of Christmas traditions. In Atlanta, there was the, there's a toy pig that people would ride. In Cleveland, we had Mr. Jingling, who is now back in his third incarnation. And it's kind of interesting that all these different cities have all these different things that are similar, but a little bit different town to town. Oh, yeah. When, when uh, in between being born in Pennsylvania and growing up in Massachusetts, we lived in New Jersey for a few years. So we would go from New Jersey into Philadelphia to Wanamaker's, which was a huge department store, and they had, you know, the, the elves in the windows and, and that moved and all that. They also had a huge golden eagle in the main lobby. And when we went there, it would have been my last Christmas, so I must have been four years old, which would have made my sister 10 and my brother 7. My sister was sitting on the golden eagle, and she threw up. Oh my gosh! So, so 
So I connected that in my mind. That was the last time we ever went to Wanamaker's, but it was because we moved to Massachusetts. Uh-huh. I thought it was because my sister threw up on the Golden Eagle that they wouldn't let us come back. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So did, and were there any Christmas traditions you uncovered from Cincinnati that got left out of the book that maybe people didn't know as well, or did pretty much all of them make it in? All of them made it in. The things that I left out were, I got so many stories from people about what their specific family did, and if it wasn't echoed by somebody else, I couldn't put all the stories in. Uh, people also started roaming outside of Cincinnati and telling me, oh, well, back in Michigan, we used to do this. And, and uh-huh. so I would politely remind them the book is about Cincinnati. So unless we did it here, I, I couldn't find room for it in the book. One of the things that, I, that was unusual for me, I had never celebrated St. Nick's Day and in Cincinnati in the schools, I guess that's a, a big deal. And oh, yeah. I've heard about that in years. Explain that to people, because I, I know that now that you said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. But I haven't heard about it uh, being done in quite a few years. Well, yeah, and I haven't either. But I think it's because my kids are all in their 20s and 30s now. So I, I don't have a, I'm not in touch with elementary schools. What it is is uh, the Feast of St. Nicholas is December 6th, which would have been yesterday. My oldest son was in kindergarten, and he went to school on December 6th, and he came home just about crying. He was so sad. I asked him what was wrong, and he said that Santa Claus had forgotten him. And I thought, what? So, so I called some of the other parents, and I found out on St. Nick's Day, the night before, you're supposed to put your shoes outside your bedroom door, and St. Nick will come through during the night and put candy, money... Uh, books, toys, Beanie Babies were the big thing when my kids were young. And, of course, he didn't get any. So the next day, I had told him, to, I said, maybe there was a mistake. I told him to leave his shoes outside his bedroom door. And St. Nick left some candy and a book and some beanie, a Beanie Baby and a letter of apology for huh. skipping over our house. <laughs> yeah, I have some recollection of doing that now. And I think some, a, a parent must have tipped us off or... Maybe my daughter heard about it in school and said, oh, is this going to... And then we had to look into it. And uh, this is probably pre-internet or early internet, so I don't even know if that was a help in getting and getting that sorted. But yeah, I forgot all about that. Is it's it, a German and I'm surprised uh, I'm one quarter German, but I had never heard of doing that. There you go. That, I was going to say, I, I'm wondering if that's unique to Cincinnati. I wonder if they do it like in Milwaukee and St. Louis where there's other uh, German populations. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, I don't know, I don't think it's as German, but the History Press also published a book called Christmas in Cleveland, and oh. I skimmed through that just to see what the format was like, um, and I didn't see any mention of St. Nick in that one. But you're from Cleveland, aren't you? Yeah, you, yeah. Well, weird thing about... very German? Yeah, yeah, the Cleveland's not very German, no. I mean, there's Germans there, but it's uh, Italians, Poles, Hungarians... Uh, they're on the east and west side, so that's uh, largely what the population is. I would say off the top of my head, and uh, but I guess particularly with Poles, so maybe it's not a uh, as much of a tradition uh, with those folks. What's weird about that too, about in Cleveland, is I didn't really know about Mr. Jingling. I guess is one of our big traditions. Like I said, the it's now that the third guy is doing it. The one guy did it; he passed away. And this other guy took over, and he passed away. And this new guy bought all the rights from the 
the second guy's widow, and he's doing it now. But growing up as a kid, I had no idea who Mr. Jingling was until I left town because I was a suburban kid. I never went downtown. We had a mall in my suburb, so there was no need to go downtown. So I kind of came to it posthumously. So it's kind of strange how some of these traditions you revisit because you're reminded of them by other people. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good point, and it kind of makes me sad, speaking of downtown, that the department stores are gone. Yeah. Um, but back, I, I was born in the 50s, pretty much grew up in the 60s. Even where I grew up, sh- Christmas shopping was a huge deal. We'd get dressed up, you know, women would wear heels and stockings. And one, one of the pictures in the book I love because it, it's a photo of two women walking away from the camera and they have seams in their stockings, which shows how old it was. <clears throat> but there were the tea rooms and the department stores downtown, and people would make a whole day of it, shopping, eating a very refined lunch at one of the tea rooms in the department stores, and then going home exhausted. Now, people, well, they may go out to the suburbs, but they usually get on Amazon, and who knows what they're wearing, bunny slippers, pajamas. <laughs> Yeah, for real. And, you know, going out on Thanksgiving night, well, that was a tradition. Thankfully, that's that one nice result of the pandemic is that's kind of not a thing anymore. Thank goodness. Oh, yeah. My daughter, uh, she volunteered in our suburb here in Cincinnati. We live in Anderson Township. She volunteered at the tree lighting, and she goes, it was just the most bizarre thing. They have a tree lighting in this rubbishy little shopping center. And sorry, it is rubbish. They could have done a much better job on it. And I'm sorry, Anderson Township. It's just, it's... It, they tore down this mall to put up this nice shopping center, and it's okay. I mean, they have a tree lighting there, like it's a it's a big deal. And she just thought it was strange. So it's it's not, I guess, going to be as beloved to her. She, I don't think she's going to look back when she's in her thirties or forties and say, "Oh, the, the Anderson Township tree lighting." She's going to probably remember how ridiculous it was. Yeah, and the the tree lighting is that the suburban malls have changed over the years. You know, we had the huge energy energy crisis in the 70s, which was before I moved here, but we had an energy crisis up in New England also. Yep. And so many of the malls in Cincinnati during the early to mid-70s did not light things. They put up flashy Santa Clauses, but relied more on the reflective properties rather than the electric, electric properties. Many uh, towns or, or neighborhoods would do the luminaria where you put candles in special bags or empty milk jugs and line a street with that. So people kind of found other ways of, of getting the light in Christmas without using electricity. I remember, I think it must have been 1972 or 73, because I think it was President Nixon before he left office, asked the nation not to put up Christmas lights because of the energy right, crisis. Right. I don't think it was Ford. I think it was President Nixon. And so I remember we didn't put up Christmas lights that year on the outside of the house. And we never did so ever again. And I don't know why I didn't. When I was in high school and I was in charge of decorations, I guess they must have gotten thrown out by that time. But what what a lasting effect that had. They, President Nixon said, please don't put them up this year. And we never did again. <laughs> Sorted. Huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to uh, ask about your other books, though, because your other books are of great interest, especially to folks, you know, uh, who buy our shirts, uh, Eight Wonders of Cincinnati, and Founder Families, uh, particularly. What are the Eight Wonders of Cincinnati? I can see them on the cover of the book here, so I guess it's kind of a kind of clued me in. But what are the Eight Wonders? Oh gosh, actually, I decided the Eight Wonders were eight categories. Okay. And so, like uh, business, commerce, restaurants, the arts, things like that. Okay. As I mentioned, when I was laid off in my early days. 
I loved Cincinnati so much that I just wanted to stay here. A lot of that, the love that I developed for Cincinnati is reflected in that Eight Wonders of Cincinnati book because the Cincinnati has the amenities of a city, but it's got the hospitality and the emotion of a, a bit of a, a, ta- a small town. So people would, like in Cincinnati, if you stop on the street and you look confused, often people will ask you if you need help. Whereas in some cities in the country, if you do that, you'll get mugged. <laughs> oh, I hear you. Yeah. It, I have to ask you as a transplant, now that I, you're mentioning things unique to Cincinnati, what did you think of the chili when you first got here? Oh, my Lord. When I first got <laughs> here, I thought, what the heck is this slop? <laughs> right? <laughs> and I couldn't believe they put it on spaghetti, and I couldn't believe that it had, like, cumin and cardamom, and some recipes have a little bit of chocolate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they'd lost their minds. But one of the things that I have in the Eight Wonders of Cincinnati book is I do talk about the chili and uh, how Empress Chili was the first chili parlor in uh, Cincinnati, and then they gave birth to the people, both of whom named Mick, who then uh, left that chili parlor and formed Skyline, and uh, I think it's Dixie Chili was the other one. And then the Daoud family started the Gold Star yep. Chili. Yep. Yeah, we had the uh, chili historian guy on. He gathered with the book, The History of Cincinnati Chili, and he explained, and I didn't know this, that every Cincinnati chili parlor traces its roots back to Empress because a person that worked at Empress went and started or went to work for one of those other parlors. Right. So the guys that the Dauds bought Hamburger Heaven from, that guy, either him or someone who worked for him, had worked at Empress and had developed a, a slightly different version of the chili. And then the Dauds bought it and they found out chili was selling better than burgers because every yutz with ears was selling hamburgers in the 60s. So they decided <laughs> to, uh, to go with chili instead. So yeah, that's a, a fascinating story in and of itself. The the founder families of Cincinnati, that's a, a unique angle. I know in Anderson Township, we have a bunch of famous families here that founded the township uh, in the earliest days of, of Europeans living here. Who are some of the founder families of greater Cincinnati that you covered? Well, uh, when I did that book, we have so many old families that go way back uh, and, you know, you can see their names and a lot of the township names and the street names, you know, Sims, Cleves, Harrison. So I had to try to set some criteria for myself as to whom I would include in the book. And I decided that I wanted them to have some kind of impact on at least two different areas. Like, for example, the Lindners uh, made their first money in United Dairy Farmers. They were the first store that had what you call cash-and-carry dairy products, as opposed to the dairymen dropping the milk and cheese and eggs off on your doorstep. Incidentally, those lowercase d, lowercase f dairy farmers weren't too happy about him doing that, and his first day at shop, as he was closing up shop, he got jumped by a bunch of the farmers and beaten up, (laughs) and and they took like a $7 that he had made in profit. But the Lindners, besides starting in commerce and, of course, being very important to the national business, also had a strong impact on the arts and on health, uh, medicine. So for that reason, 
I uh, wanted to include people in the book that had impacts in multiple ways. So, and in fact, I used to like it when I sang with the May Festival Chorus at Riverbend. When we left, Mr. Lindner would be getting in his limo and, and leaving. And I always wanted to say, you know, thank you for sponsoring us because they were a big part of it. And what other, did you cover like the Tafts and for the, for the big political families? Oh, yeah, the Tafts. And I got a neat picture from the, from the archives from Kevin Grace at the University of Cincinnati Archives. Uh, he just retired this year. And he, it had a, I had a picture of the four Taft brothers. And it was really neat seeing such power and such history in one photograph. And I found it fascinating that William Howard Taft said that his most important job that he ever had was serving as the chief justice of the Supreme Court, not being the president. Yeah, that's right. He was, I think, he was the first or the only, or maybe first and only, uh, former president to serve on the Supreme Court. Right, he was. Okay. And uh, so what other families are in, in the uh, founders, founding families of Cincinnati? Well, I've got the Holmes, as in the, like Holmes Hospital, I've also I had the uh, Fleischmanns, and they are of uh, Fleischmanns East. Uh, one of the Fleischmanns was also a mayor of Cincinnati at a fairly young age. And let's see, you know, who else? I also have some of the, oh, one of the things that I was pleased with that book, as I was writing it, a lot of people said, oh, my great-great-great-grandfather was the first baby born in Cincinnati uh, you have to write about him, you know, that kind of uh, input. And I tactfully would tell people the first baby born in Cincinnati was probably an indigenous baby or maybe a black baby, but it was not a white baby. And nobody wrote it down at the time. Nobody wrote how long they were and how much they weighed and what time the baby arrived. So I ended up putting that in the book. And I did mention some of the people who pride their families, you know, it's part of the family's pride that they had the first white baby in Cincinnati. But I uh, included, you know, I'd, I'd like to recognize that the, the we white people aren't the only ones. So I have that in the book. I also have, uh, speaking of the Harrisons I mentioned before, William Henry Harrison was the president who uh, got sick at the inauguration and his wife never made it to the White House uh, because he got sick and didn't serve very long. Many people felt that he was still seeing himself as a young general fighting an army, whereas he was actually an older man, and he refused to wear a coat. Yeah. Added to that, you know, the weather was bad. Of course, now we know that just being out in cold weather doesn't make you sick, but if you're already harboring the germs, it doesn't help. And he has the record for the longest inaugural speech. That's right. The one who holds the second longest inaugural speech was Benjamin Harrison. Oh. Yeah, I forgot they were related. We were talking to someone else on the show about that, and I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot those those two were kin. Um, yeah, it's it, pneumonia got him, and I think he, what, he didn't even, I don't even think he served three, three four months. And, no, uh, it was more like a month and a half. And we lost and him. And his yeah. wife was packing up their stuff at their home, and she was going to join him later. And so that's why she never made it to the White House, because he died before she got there. That's just a crazy story. Uh, hey, people always forget about that. I know on The Simpsons they did a uh, a thing, uh, one of the early episodes, where Bart was in a 
presidential pageant at school, and the number was the, the Forgotten Presidents, and uh, William Henry Harrison was a, a member of the one line was, hey, I died in 30 days! <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking of Forgotten Presidents, one of the books that I wanted to publish, it's actually I wanted to do a series w- along with a friend of mine, and we were going to call the series They Grew Up to Be President Anyway. Our goal was to talk about some of the presidents that we don't know about. You know, in school we study Washington, Jefferson, maybe Adam, Kennedy. And so I wanted specifically to, to show kids some of the things that the presidents that they never heard of did and also how they might have had rough going when they were young. They grew up to be president anyway. Like, for example, Jimmy Carter's father sold shoes. And many times they were so broke that Jimmy had to walk to school in women's shoes because that's all they had at the time. And yet he grew up to be president, and he has, like, a, an incredible IQ of, like, 176, 180. Yeah. And he has a 96% retention rate so that what he reads, he remembers 96% of it. Wow. It's strange you mentioned uh, Jimmy Carter because I have a, a nonpartisan opinion about uh, Carter and about his predecessor, Gerald Ford, as I was thinking about it, you know, especially in the, the climate we're in now where, you know, you, you trust politicians or trust presidents. And I, I know people have always kind of been a bit skeptical, but it seems it's even worse now. But in my lifetime, the two guys I would trust most – now, you may not have agreed with the job they did – but the two guys I would trust most that would not run jive by you would be Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. I mean, are you with the no, job yeah, they did? But if they that. if they um, told you something, if they came on TV and said, "Hey, this is what's going on," it'd be like, "Okay, I trust both of those guys." And you know, one Democrat, one Republican. So not a partisan thing. But I would trust both. And anyone since then, I'm kind of like, yeah, I've always been. Ever since then, I've always been skeptical of everybody, at least at some point in their presidency. So maybe I'm just got old and got cynical. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, well, me too, probably. But you know, I think you're right. Looking back, Gerald Ford was not a ball of fire. But no. I do think he was trustworthy. And Jimmy Carter, you know, people have different opinions. I know Katie Couric kind of slashed him to the bone when she was interviewing him on the Today Show one time. Yeah. And she said to him, I think uh, history will show you to be a not a very effective president. And he looked like he'd been slapped. His face fell. And after that, he was he answered her in pretty much monosyllables. Yeah. And I thought, what a thing to say in the interview. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Both of them were trust uh, were our trustworthy people. Um, kind of got off the, uh, the the subject there a little bit, but uh, I wanted to, to get that in because, like, uh, well, like you said, this, th- these are presidents we don't know about. I mean, I'm good on like I know like maybe the first three or four. I can go backwards from current presidents back to I think almost to Lincoln in the proper order. But then the 1800s there, man, that's just. I got them all mixed up. Your Jacksons, your Harrisons, your Tylers. I I don't know who came when or what. And so that's a James K. Polk. I only know him from a They Might Be Giants song. But I, <laughs> and I, he served like in the 1840s ish one term. I know that from the song. But uh, yeah, so that's a good. Do you think that book will still perhaps see the light of day? Because that, that'd be a, that sounds like a great idea for a book. Well, it probably won't see the light of day because I've got uh, five books that I want to write now, and um, at the rate I'm going, uh, I might be dead by the time I get five books done. And also, uh, when we pitched that, there was one publisher who was really great. He wrote us a lengthy rejection letter. It was the best rejection I ever got. 
And he said, unfortunately, series are not doing very well these days. Well, that was back in the 90s, and I haven't paid attention to it. So I think series are doing better now, but in fiction rather than in nonfiction. Um, so that's something you always have to consider. And a couple of the editors we had sent our, our pitch to said, boy, this is a great idea. Why don't you do the iconic presidents? You know, Kennedy, uh, Lincoln. I thought that's exactly what we did not want to do. You know, you bring up a good point. Is the internet changed the, and Amazon and things like that changed the book writing business? I know it's changed the book business, but in terms of writing, since you can get things digitally, you know, and on your Kindles and in PDFs and things like that, is it, I mean, from the books I've read lately, and it's been mostly nonfiction stuff I've reviewed for our sister site, it doesn't seem to have affected it much, but has it changed the way you write at all, or just that, is it just like a good resource, you know, a good research tool? It has changed in two ways, and I'll answer the easier way first. Uh, of course, the actual writing process, it is so much easier to write a draft on a computer, and then if you need to move something, you can pick it up and move it. Whereas in the old days of typewriters, and I grew up with typewriters, and my mother worked for an author, and I watched her slave away when the author would change like one sentence, and she would have to retype all the pages around it until she got to the end of a chapter uh, because it would mess up the page break. The other thing, you have to be careful. So you know, the Internet, anybody can put stuff up on the Internet. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You can even find, uh, I like to triangulate my sources, you know, find three things, that three sources that say the same thing before yes. I believe it. Yep. And you'll find three sources that say things that still are not true. Also, I, my second book was on issues in the national parks. I published that in 2004. And while I was working on that one, there was a, a horrible thing that happened in the Department of the Interior. The Interior Department also controls the Indian Trust, which is a great deal of money that the Native Americans have access to, they're entitled to. Someone had hacked into the Indian Trust, and so the Department of the Interior shut down all its Internet sites, all its websites. And I was in the middle of writing a book on the National Park Service, which is in the Department of Interior. So I went back to doing things by hand, you know, mail, telephone calls, that oh my kind goodness. of stuff. And so I found, and I had not printed out stuff that I found on various websites. I thought, oh, I'll just write down the URL and I can go back to it later. Now, if something's really important and I use a lot of uh, information from it, I will still print it out because of that. Oh, that's a good uh, good tip for the young folks out there. Uh, similar to when I tell people that, you know, streaming music is fine, but sometimes stuff disappears. So if you really want it, hold on to it. I guess the same thing with books. If there's a book you really like, uh, hang on to it, kids, because it might always might not always be available. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, Wendy. And the, the current book that we're promoting, of course, is Cincinnati Christmas. And we, you can get that anywhere, obviously. Amazon. Yeah, Joseph. Yes? You can get it at Joseph Bass. You can get it at um, some of the Barnes & Nobles. I'm going to be going up to... Uh, the Westchester Barnes & Noble on the 18th to do a book signing. Oh, great. And, uh, you can get it at the bookshelf in Madeira. 
Um, you can also, of course, get it online. Um, you can even get it from Walmart online. I don't oh, wow. know what the price is, but it might be a little less expensive. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Uh, the, the last order of business we have is what we usually have our guests pick the coupon code that our listeners can use until the next episode drops. And the coupon code is good for 20% off at either Cincy Shirts online or in the stores or at our sibling site, OldSchoolShirts.com. And it can be a, a word or a, a couple of word phrase. What would you like that coupon code to be? Cincinnati. I can do that. Christmas in Cincinnati it is. Great. Well, again, Wendy, thanks a lot for taking the time. We'll link people to all your uh, resources and so forth and where they can follow you and find out more about your books. And uh, have a, a, you know, good luck promoting the book and continued success and have a good holidays. Thank you. Same to you. All right. Thanks, Wendy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In 1844, the Democrats were split. The three nominees for the presidential candidate for Martin Van Buren, a former president and an abolitionist, James Buchanan, a moderate, Louis Cass, a general and expansionist. Wendy Hart Beckman. So there's uh, James K. Polk by They Might Be Giants. That's the only reason I know anything about James K. Polk. Didn't realize he served one term until I heard that song. I probably did. I don't remember. But anyway, uh, Wendy's books, of course, can be found at Amazon and Joseph Beth. It's probably better if you buy them from, like, Joseph Beth or an actual bookstore or maybe from her website than it would be if you buy them from Amazon. I don't know. Just saying. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email us podcast at cincyshirts.com. Maybe put podcast guest in the subject line for us in a few sentences about why you think that person would be a good guest on the show. And as always, you can volunteer your own services if you think you have an interesting connection to the city and or the tri-state. If you haven't already, go back and check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. Feel free to cherry pick, friends, as my friend Jackie Cation says about her podcast. You don't have to listen to them all. If there's certain areas of ghosts. We have a lot of ghost stuff, abandoned stuff. You just want to listen to the celebrity stuff, listen to those. Just listen to a few or all of them. Either way, it's fine with us. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing there from Philadelphia. Find their music on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find Binge of Tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and a whole lot more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Just added Fort Wayne and Grand Rapids, Michigan, by the way. So it's like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns, old malls, defunct sports teams, all that kind of stuff. Just the kind of stuff we have here, but for those cities. Again, the promo code for this episode is Christmas in Cincinnati. All one word. Christmas in Cincinnati. All one word. Capitalization part doesn't matter, but you're going to use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or you can come into the stores in Over the Rhine and Hyde Park and say, hey, I'd like to use the podcast code Christmas in Cincinnati, and I'll give you 20% off. How about that? Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.
I said goodbye